0: Hello everyone, it's Rob from the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop. As a record collector that lives in the suburbs of St. Louis, finding vintage rap on vinyl is like discovering an original draft of the U.S. Constitution rolled up inside one of the missing Fabergé eggs that has been placed inside the Ark of the Covenant and then buried at the bottom of the Oak Island money pit. So when I found an antique shop that had a few crates of old school records, I grabbed as much of it as my meager bank account could manage. And now as part of the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop, I'm going to share some of these musical rarities with you in a new series I'm calling Bring the Noise, A History of Early Hip-Hop. Over the course of the series, I'll go through my records in chronological order and look at the stories behind some of the innovators and influencers who have helped make hip-hop culture such an enduring part of the American identity for nearly 50 years. But before we can get to the records, we have to tell the story of the birth of hip-hop, and we can't tell the story of hip-hop without first telling the story of New York City in the 1970s. As Europe was rebuilding after World War II, New York became the cultural and industrial center of the world. With this new city status came people looking for work, most notably African Americans escaping the open racial hostility of the American South as part of an era historians now call the Second Great Migration. During this time, which spanned from about 1940 until 1970, around 5 million black people moved out of the South and settled to the North and the West, having a profound impact on the racial makeup of the country. By the 1970s, nearly half of the African American population had left the South, with many of those migrant people settling in urban areas following the jobs they so desperately needed to gain a foothold in their new homes. In New York alone, the African American population went from 458,000 to 1.6 million during those 30 years. In direct response to that increase, the white population went from 92% of the populace, or 6.8 million, down to only 63%, or 4.9 million people. This is now better known as White Flight, where Caucasian blue-collar workers begin moving out of the city proper and into the surrounding suburbs as non-whites move into their neighborhood. Not coincidentally, the Second Great Migration occurred during two distinct eras of American economics. It started as wartime production ramped up in the 1940s and continued through the post-war boom of the 1950s. But by the late 1960s and early 70s, the American economy had become stagnant as the rest of the world finally recovered from the destruction of World War II. The stagnation hit New York especially hard. Thanks to the earlier boom years, the price of doing business in the city had grown to the point where many industries couldn't afford to be there anymore. In addition, as whites moved out of the city, only to be replaced with minorities that didn't have the same educational opportunities thanks to the Jim Crow era of state-sanctioned segregation, many companies saw a win-win situation by leaving for the suburbs too, essentially practicing their own form of white flight. In the span of six years between 1969 and 1975, 500,000 manufacturing jobs simply vanished from New York City. As the companies left, unemployment grew. Without jobs, people couldn't afford to buy new houses, and those who had bought a house before couldn't pay the mortgage anymore. And if they can't pay their mortgage, they can't pay their property taxes either. This led to a smaller tax base for city services like police, fire, sanitation, education, and transportation, even though the population remained fairly steady at about 7.9 million people. By the spring of 1975, the city was $11 billion in debt, almost forcing it into bankruptcy. In an effort to cut costs, they laid off 45,000 municipal employees, leaving most departments understaffed and underfunded, and only adding to the city's unemployment woes. Without these public services, the city soon became a dystopia the likes of which America had never seen before. Thanks to an outmanned and underpaid police force having to patrol a largely unemployed population, it created a perfect environment for crime to grow. From 1965 until 1975, the murder rate in New York almost tripled, from 681 people to 1,690 people, making it the most dangerous city in the United States. Prostitution and drug dealing went unchecked. Rough and tumble street gangs like the Black Spades, the Savage Skulls, and the Seven Immortals mugged and murdered their way across the city and in the ever-deteriorating subways. When unemployed tenants stopped paying their rent, many buildings were simply abandoned by their landlords. At one point, there were 11,000 empty buildings across the city, so arson became the crime de jour as landlords paid street gangs to set fire to these derelict properties just so the landlord could collect the insurance payout. Due to cutbacks in the fire department, with 26 fire stations closing in 1975 alone, many of these buildings were left to burn to the ground. Garbage began piling up on the street to the tune of 48,000 tons over the course of only two days when sanitation workers went on a brief strike over the massive layoffs. Central Park became a wasteland of bare dirt and dry fountains as the park's department staff was cut by 50% and its budget slashed from $24 million to $5 million in the span of one year. 7,000 teachers lost their jobs, causing additional stress on an already strained public education system, leading to a 53.1% high school dropout rate by 1976. Long story short, life was pretty bad in New York City, and it was even worse in lower-income boroughs like the Bronx. So it's no surprise that many young people were looking for an outlet, an escape. But with no money to get into exclusive dance clubs like the infamous Studio 54, this gave rise to house parties where, for a small cover charge, a person could dance the night away and try to block out the world around them even for just a few hours. It was in this environment that 18-year-old Jamaican immigrant Clive Campbell, also known as DJ Cool Herc, began spinning funk, soul, reggae, and disco records for house parties across the Bronx. His sound system was legendary, as he was one of the few DJs in the neighborhood that used two turntables, allowing him to play one record while queuing up a second. By mixing the ending of the first song into the beginning of the second song, he was able to avoid a long pause in between, keeping people on the dance floor so the party never really stopped. But Herc had noticed something. More people came out to dance during the break, the instrumental filler in a song, popularly known then as the get-down part. So on August 11, 1973, while playing records at a party his little sister threw in order to raise money for back-to-school clothes, Herc decided to publicly debut a technique he'd been working on called merry-go-rounding. The cover charge of the party in the rec room at the high-rise apartment building located at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue was only 50 cents for guys and 25 cents for the ladies, but it was a small price to pay for a front-row seat to history. Similar to mixing the beginning and ending of two songs together, Merry-Go-Rounding mixed two breaks together. He noticed that the underlying drum beat to the break in James Brown's Give It Up and Turn It Loose was similar to the beat in Bongo Rock 73 by The Incredible Bongo Band. So when the end of the break in Give It Up and Turn It Loose came on, Herc mixed that beat with the one from Bongo Rock. Then he found that a similar beat was played on the break in The Mexican by the British group Babe Ruth. So when the bongo rock break was winding down, Hurt mixed it into The Mexican. He could then mix that break back into Give It Up and Turn It Loose to create a never-ending loop, just like a merry-go-round. And thus, an entire genre of music was born. Word of Herc's new sound spread, and soon he was playing to packed houses. In fact, his parties grew too big for the rec room at 1520 Sedgwick, so eventually they were forced to go outside to nearby public parks, where he'd plug his sound system into the streetlights for power. Hundreds of people would be drawn to the parks because of the raucous beats and dancing feet, helping to spread the legend of DJ Cool Herc throughout the five boroughs. For most party DJs, it was the record spinner himself who would occasionally get on a microphone and talk to the dancers to keep the energy high. However, as he became too busy mixing breaks behind the turntables, Herc got a friend, Cochla Rock, to take over toasting, a term used for working the crowd borrowed from Jamaican block parties. In this burgeoning music scene of the Bronx, this new role of hype man became known as the Master of Ceremonies, or the MC. Coke LaRock used the mic to call out his friends, to pump up people's egos and make them look good in front of the girls, as well as tell everyone how great he and DJ Kool Herc were. He later started making up short poems to the beat of the extended breaks that Herc created. Here he is talking about one of his first rhymes in a 2010 interview with Steve Hager, a pioneer of hip-hop journalism.
1: Was there any talking on the mic
0: at Cindy's birthday party?
1: Yeah, but it was just, like I said, just calling out my friend names.
0: Right. You, you me just recreate it like the first rap you did. Can you okay. remember anything?
1: The first one was like, There's not a man that can't be thrown, a horse that can't be rolled, a bull that can't be stopped, there's not a disco that I, the Rock, can't rock. And I put the echo in the echo chamber. That's why you got the Rock, 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 Cool DJ Herc and the Rock. The serious. Okay, so at the very first party, you guys were rocking the echo and making rhymes. Yeah, yeah. But oh, I was calling guys names. Right, out. Right, right. I was saying like like my crew. My had E. My man, they would go like Easy Al, Skip from the joint, Norm Rockwell, Mid Paradise. You know, cats' names. And I would tell you go move your car. Like Easy Al, you double parking me. Go move your town's car. And we like 15, 16. So you'd be like, all right, I'm gonna move my car. So the girls would be like, ooh, he got a car. You ain't got no car out there, you know? And my man, money bill, dollar bill, you know, I used to say he had a million dollars. He ain't have 50 cents, you know? So that's all it was. It was hyping us up and laugh and dance and talk.
0: As DJ Herc's merry-go-round technique became better known, it began attracting a new type of fan, dancers who showcased their best moves during one of his extended breaks. Because they preferred to dance in the breaks, Herc called them breakers, which he later evolved to b-boys and b-girls. The media would eventually dub this new style breakdancing. With Herc behind the turntables, cochlear rock on the mic, and breakers out in the crowd, a cool Hurt gig became less a simple dance party and more a theatrical show. To that end, Herc combined these elements into a traveling troupe of performers, along with his monster sound system known as the Herculords, named as an homage to the sci-fi Hanna-Barbera cartoon TV show from the 1960s, The Herculoids. Herc and his crew soon made their way out of the schoolyards and public parks and into dance clubs like the Twilight Zone and the Executive Playhouse, as well as other venues across New York City, playing to sold-out crowds everywhere they went. However, the good times couldn't last forever. During a performance at the Executive Playhouse, DJ Cool Herc was stabbed just before he went on stage. Herc wasn't the intended target, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But the event changed the attitudes of Cool Herc and his friend Cook Rock, They both realized that violence had begun seeping into the hip-hop scene, and it was something they didn't want to be a part of anymore. They both stepped away to focus on themselves and their families. But even if Herc hadn't been injured, his success, ironically, made him too busy to experiment and innovate. He had a formula that worked, so he didn't bother pushing the envelope. Meanwhile, performers inspired by DJ Kool Herc and Coke La Rock were exploring this new musical genre in order to develop their own styles into more complex and more fully realized forms of expression. DJs like Grandmaster Flash and Afrika Bambaataa took the merry-go-round technique and made it their own, adding new elements to advance the sound beyond prolonging the break for dancing. MCs like Grandmaster Kaz and Melly Mel began writing extended rhymes that proved MCing could be more than just a way to keep the crowd dancing. When Herc and Coke stepped out of the scene, the momentum they started was too great to wait for them, so they got left behind. By 1980, when Curtis Blow became the first rapper signed to a major music label, DJ Cool Herc, the godfather of hip-hop, was working as a minimum wage clerk in a record store. DJ Cool Herc and Coke Rock might have created hip hop, but they were never able to fully capitalize on their invention. Neither produced a single record during their heyday and would mostly be forgotten today were it not for the efforts of historians and reverential artists who refused to let their influence fade. In the 1990s, as mainstream rap music was entering its second decade, Herc's legacy began to be reevaluated and appreciated by contemporary artists. He was even asked to record a spoken word piece on the last solo album of Terminator X, the DJ for the rap group Public Enemy, marking Herc's first time on a record.
1: I like that sound y'all put down a lot, but hip hop is worldwide now, and all who's knocking it, keep on knocking. it. So if you gonna think about us. we mean, not thinking about you it's good enough for me. Rock on, New York City. DJ Kool Herc, the godfather of hip hop, and out here.
0: Despite some health problems in the 2000s, DJ Kool Herc is still kicking and is still a Bronx-based DJ working the club circuit today. In 2007, the New York State Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation declared that 1520 Sedgwick Avenue would be eligible for preservation as an historic site. However, that status was repealed in 2008 when wealthy developers wanted to rezone the property as high-rent apartments. Oddly, thanks to the housing bubble that burst that same year, the property fell into foreclosure and was eventually sold to a collective called the Workforce Housing Advisors, who are dedicated to keeping the building available to low- and middle-income residents. Since then, the birthplace of hip-hop now has a new address, when in 2016, Mayor Bill de Blasio declared that part of Sedgwick Avenue be renamed to Hip-Hop Boulevard, proving that the Bronx is nothing if not proud of its hip-hop roots. The work of DJ Cool Herc and Cochle Rock is just the spark that set off a musical revolution. There's a whole lot more to the story of early hip-hop that we'll be going through using my record collection as a guide. And on the next Bring the Noise, we'll look at the first mainstream success of hip-hop, the first record that introduced the world to this new form of music, as well as a culture that would eventually span the globe. Thanks for checking out this episode of Bring the Noise, presented by the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at SMX Audio, where I'll be sending out old-school hip-hop photos, YouTube links, articles, and show updates from time to time. And if you like what you hear, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. It would really help. Until next time, this has been your host Rob Lamley for Bring the Noise, a history of early hip-hop.